You're listening to a message from South Hills Church in Burbank, California. For more information about South Hills, check out SouthHillsBurbank.com. Let's dive into the message this morning. If you're a note taker, get ready to write. And uh, if you want to take pictures of the screen, just get your phone out and get ready to do that. Um, I don't know if you ever had one of these moments. I'm sure you have. But have you ever had a time where someone convinced you to do something that you didn't really want to do? But you did it because they were so passionate about it, and you trusted them. Like, you didn't want to eat at that restaurant. You actually hate that food. But because they love it so much, and they talked about it so much, and you trust them that you were willing to at least try it. Or maybe it was the movie that you, you can't stand that actor, that director, that actress. You just didn't want to see that movie, but somebody loved it so much that they talked you into it, and you went anyway because of their passion. This happened for me. My son, um, both of my older two boys, uh, one's now 16 and 14, uh, but my 14-year-old, Dylan, when he turned 13, um, we did something for him and for Gray, the older one, uh, when they turned 13, called the Year of the Man, and we wanted to do something manly uh, in their 13th year of life. They could choose whatever it was, and then I would do it with them. So whatever they wanted to do, we just did it. So uh, Gray was, he, he went with like the easy route because he enjoys things like Dave and Buster. So we, we did like something simple together. We had some fun. Uh, Dylan wanted to go. He's a little bit more of like my edgy kid that like likes a little bit more adventurous things and fearful things. So he chose and he was talking for a while about going bungee jumping. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Now, let's just be honest. I had no desire to go bungee jumping. It was not something I wanted to do. It was not on my bucket list. But it's something he wanted to do, and he talked about it for a while. Couldn't wait to turn 13 because you were allowed to go when you turned 13. So he just wanted so badly to go bungee jumping. So it didn't matter that we had to get up before the sun was up, that we had to drive to the location, that we had to hike in a couple miles to the bridge to nowhere, that we were going to tie ourselves to a rubber band and jump to our deaths (laughs) off the side of a bridge. Like, none of that bothered him. He was so excited the whole way to do this thing. And I faked my excitement because I knew he cared about it. But inside, internally, and actually externally, I was sweating like crazy. I was scared out of my mind because I don't want to jump off of a perfectly good bridge. Like, why would I want to choose that moment? Now, what happens, uh, if you've never done this before, they, they tie a large uh, cord to your, to your feet and like, it connects to a harness system, so it was safe. But ultimately, you, you have to come to a place where you stand outside of the bridge on like a 12 by 12 inch metal grate that you can see through. Like, I don't know why they had to make it see through. Like, just make it a solid piece of something and give me like one handlebar on the side. No handlebar, nothing. It was just you step out and you're now standing on this little piece of metal. I was shaking like crazy. I had watched countless people jump before me and laughed at them and took pictures of them and thought it was hilarious. Like, oh, this is going to be great. But the moment it's my turn, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. You could jump forward or backward, didn't matter. Dylan just stepped up and he jumped and he was having a great time. So, of course, to try to be a good dad, I've got to fake my way through this thing. I'm going to jump off of this bridge. And eventually I did. And it was great. And we had a great time and we hiked back and it was a great moment. But the only reason I did that was because of his excitement for it. I, I really, I wouldn't have gone on my own. It wasn't something I was ever desiring to do. And I just wonder sometimes that, that maybe this is how many of us in this room have discovered some of our favorite things in life. 
that you discovered something that's really important to you, something that you really care about now, because somebody along the way invited you to experience it. Somebody invited you to that restaurant. And because they invited you to that restaurant, you now love that place. Somebody invited you to watch a, sh- a show. They, asked you, they talked to you about something on Netflix and you binge watched it in three days and you were so proud of yourself that you crushed like eight seasons in three days. That's a great accomplishment. But you love the show and it's like your favorite thing, but you wouldn't have really watched it unless they had told you about it and invited you to check it out. Some of you are in careers because somebody invited you into a career that they thought you would like and you decided to give it a shot and so you tried something and you found that you loved it. Some of you said yes when somebody asked you to marry them and they invited you into something that you're still trying to figure out whether or not you want to be in all the way. But we'll, get, we'll come to that during family month probably. But some of your most significant experiences, some of my most significant experiences in life were the result of a simple invitation that I received. And I think some of the most significant moments in your life were probably the result of an invitation that you received. That somebody invited you into something. They they asked you to be a part of something. And when you look back on your life at some of your most significant moments, you could probably remember the people that invited you to be a part of those. Now, I understand that not every one of those invitations is going to be significantly positive. Not all of them are going to be successful. Sometimes we simply don't like the food. Sometimes we hated the movie. Sometimes we threw up on the roller coaster. We didn't like it. We didn't enjoy it. We didn't care about it. Sometimes our experiences are not the same as the person that invited us. But, but there's still an appreciation. There's still a gratitude that somebody would invite us into something that they like. Because ultimately, we like it when people like what we like. And we like to know that they like the thing that we invited them to. Like, when I tell somebody about a restaurant, for some reason, it's like, it's better now to me when I know that they liked it as much as I did. Now, we know that not everyone is going to have the same experience, but what we do understand, because what every great invitation will do to every single person, every great invitation will expose us to something that we might not otherwise have noticed. There's an exposure to something that you might not have ever tried it. You might not have ever gone to that place. You might not have ever attempted the career path. But then when you do, when you attempt it, you are now exposed to something that you would not have tried before. There's an experience now that you can have. You may hate sushi, completely hate it as much as my wife does. I cannot get her to try it. She won't look at it. She won't come near it. We can't even be near the restaurant. And I've even tried the non-fishy sushi. It doesn't matter. She won't even touch it. But she appreciates that I keep trying to get her to eat it. I try to sneak it into her food, and she notices (laughs) But how many of us, how many of us deep down, we look foolish when we say no to things and somebody says, uh, well, have you tried it? No. How do you know you don't like it? I just know. This is what my children do to me all the time. Hey, you should eat this. Nope. Have you ever tried that before? Nope. I think you would like it. Nope. Like, that's it. That's all I'm going to get out of them. So then what do I do? I hold them down on the ground and I shove it into their face. (laughs) I force them to eat it. And then they're like, I hated it. And I'm like, see, I knew it. I knew you would. But see, we, we, we think it's, it's humorous when it's kids, but we do this as adults. 
Sometimes we reject things for no reason. We've never tried it. We've never experienced it. We've never even given it a, given it a chance. And what, what I really think this morning and where I want to go this morning with you is that part of what makes something great is when we share that greatness with other people. I think there's something that makes experiences better when we share great experiences with other people, whatever it is. Whatever that experience is, when you start to share it with someone else, it suddenly becomes better to us. There's something that happens. There's this transaction that takes place. We love it when people like what we like. And we don't think twice about sharing those things that we love with people. Some of you, you don't think twice about the moment somebody throws up a, a comment and they, or they question and they're like, hey, looking for a restaurant. Bam, you're on it. Like you love sharing restaurants with people. And they, hey, looking for a coffee shop. Bam, you're all over telling people what coffee shop to go to. But something, there's some things that we just simply don't like to invite people to. There's, there's pause when we get to certain things. And unfortunately, church happens to be one of those things. We'll invite people to everything. But the moment it comes to church, we pump the brakes. Why? Why do we do that? Personally, I think it's because we're, we have some assumptions. And we have some fears. And we think our fears are valid. We think that there's no such thing as a neutral opinion when it comes to church, that people are either all in for it or people hate it and they hate people that like it. Like, we just think it's, it's the two extremes, and I'll be honest with you, I, I am in that boat with you. I, I, I have been fearful my entire life of inviting people to church. As a kid, I would never invite somebody to church. As a, as a student, I think I invited one friend my entire life to my youth group when I was growing up. As an adult working in church, I was afraid to invite people to my church. Why? Because I thought that was going to be the Sunday that I invited somebody in, and that was going to be the Sunday that the crazy guy did his crazy thing. And then I would have no excuse. I would have no explanation. I wouldn't know what to tell them. And then in my mind, I ran down the rabbit trail of, well, now they're going to hate church. They're going to hate God. They're going to hate me. They're destined for hell. And it's all my fault. Like, that was my, my path that I went down. And we have these fears. We have these irrational fears and false assumptions. So let me just challenge you. What if your assumption is wrong? What if your assumption that, that people have issues and baggage about church? What if that assumption is wrong? Now, do some people? Yes. But statistics are actually supporting that most people don't really have an opinion because they have no experience with church nowadays. They didn't grow up in an environment with church. They weren't drugged to church as a kid. They, didn't, they weren't made to go. Maybe they went way when they were young, but they haven't been in so many years. They really have no opinion of church. Now, they have opinion of church people, but they don't really have an opinion of whether or not they like or dislike church. And if that's actually true, if, you, if our assumptions are incorrect, then what do we need to do about it? How do we push through that fear? You see, what I know is that you're here. I know that you're here this morning, that you got out of bed today, and you made a decision that you were going to come to church. So let me ask you, just in your own mind, why? Why did you come? What was it that made you want to get out of bed at, you know, whatever time you got out of bed, 9, 10, some of you 10.05, and came straight here? 
What made you get out of bed this morning and come to church? What was it that compelled you? What was your reason for it? And for whatever reason, you're here. Whether it was an invitation at one point, maybe it was a Yelp review that you were reading, or it was a Love the 818 shirt that you saw, or a Facebook ad, or, or just a personal conversation, or you just moved to this area and you started looking for churches and you drove by and you saw it. But for whatever reason, you stayed. And because you stayed, you've connected to something. And some of you are still deciding whether or not this is your church. But for some reason, you came back. And you're trying to figure it out. And I think sometimes as people, we have to understand that it takes a very small group of people to start a church. But it takes a group of people willing to invite people to grow a church. Amen. I wanted to show this to you, actually. This is a picture of our church before we started. This is the, the weekend before our church launched. Four and a half years ago. This is in the community room where we, were, we launched the church in that room. You can tell that half of our launch group is kids. Like, there weren't a lot of people. It wasn't a huge team. And for some reason, that group of people decided that there's something about this place that they were going to invite people to. That they wanted to create an experience. And somehow... I'm not even fully sure I understand how it happened. Somehow we went from that to four services and 700 plus people on a weekend. And it doesn't happen because of our staff. It doesn't happen because of the creativity of our team. It doesn't happen because we wow people with something. It happens because people walk through the doors and they experience something. And then they invite people to experience what they've experienced with no strings attached. And what we're going to see this morning is that there's this incredible passage in the Gospel of John where we get to read an, an eyewitness account of something that took place, a piece of history about the life of Jesus. We actually get to read this for ourselves and see that it connects very much to the conversation that we had last week about the early church and that the early church had a very simple approach to things. And over time, we've complicated it and we've made it fearful and never was intended to be that. This morning, I want to challenge you and encourage you to lean in. Because you're going to learn something today that I think will help you and I both let go of some of the fear that we have of inviting people and realize that it's not that we have a responsibility to play, but our responsibility is not to figure out that person's experience. So check this out, John chapter 1. Gospel of John, this is one of Jesus' disciples. He's writing this eyewitness account of what he saw and, and people that he's talked to about what they saw. And so he's going to put together this particular gospel, this writing for you and I. John chapter 1, verse 35 tells us this. The next day, John, not the author John, but John the Baptist John, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Now, John the Baptist had his own disciples. He was teaching about God. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. And so people were gravitating towards him because of his teachings. And what he was teaching was so different and unique and he was pointing towards this coming Messiah that was promised in the, the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures. That there was the prophets and everybody was pointing to this coming Messiah that would one day show up. And it says that he looked up and he saw Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, take look. Everybody check it out. The Lamb of God. The Messiah. The one that was promised. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, that's a check of your ego, that if you have two disciples, 
and you say, hey, look, behold, the Lamb of God, and your disciples leave you immediately and go follow the other guy. So Jesus turns and he sees them following him and he, and he says, what are you seeking? And they say to him, rabbi, which means teacher, that's what Jesus was, where are you staying? Odd question, because he asked, where, what are you seeking? And they asked him, where are you staying? Uh, he says to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and then they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speaking followed Jesus and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother, Simon, and he says to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So what's happening here? John the Baptist sees Jesus. He recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And I'm going to explain to you in a moment why that's so significant. The first thing that he can think of doing is to tell his followers who it is and that they now need to go and follow him. He invites his disciples to go and follow Jesus. The first thing that then happens is one of those guys that are following Jesus. They want to know where he's staying. So Jesus says, hey, just come and see. Just come and see for yourself who I am and what I do. So they follow him. And then one of those guys likes what he hears. He spends a day with Jesus. He's so transformed. His life is so changed that he has to go find someone else and invite them to be a part of it. So they go and they can't think of anybody else. They're trying to think like, who needs to be a part of this? And they go, my brother, my brother, Simon Peter, he's an idiot. He needs Jesus. Like this guy's a rough around the edges guy. If anybody needs Jesus, it's Peter. And so he knows it, so he invites Peter to come, and so Peter comes. And then, they, then this other guy, Philip, they, they're going to go to Philip, and they're going to go find him. And so there's this idea in the early church, just when everything is starting. It's not even the church yet. This is just the followers of Jesus so far. The early followers, they would experience something with Jesus, and they would immediately want to go find somebody close by and invite them to follow Jesus. So everyone in this story is so excited about what they've experienced. They can't help but tell somebody else. They don't overthink it. They don't complicate it. They don't ask themselves, well, what if Jesus does like a weird thing? What if it's like, what if it's awkward? What if we run out of donut holes? I mean, what if, well, I mean, what if something happens? They simply just share it and they invite people to come and see for themselves. See, the people in these stories, they start by telling people closest to them. And eventually they begin to tell the people that they barely know. But they begin with those closest to them. So I think it's reasonable, based on this particular situation, based on something that we read later on in the Gospels, when Jesus finds out that John the Baptist is murdered. When Jesus finds that out, Jesus is so emotionally moved and distraught by the death of John. There's really only two times in the Bible where Jesus is distraught emotionally like in a moment like this, and it's over the deaths of two people, Lazarus and John the Baptist. So what's the significance of John the Baptist? John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. If you don't know this, Jesus had a cousin. I assume he had more than one, but we only know about this one right now. There's John the Baptist, that they knew each other before they were born, that when their mothers came towards each other, that the, the baby leapt in their bellies, what we can read in the Bible is that they, they were friends before they were ever born. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say this specifically, but I have to, I have to assume something into this story. Because of the culture and because of the climate and because of the way people live, this was the type of situation where families stayed close. And so John the Baptist would have lived close to Jesus. He wouldn't have just like moved far away. People didn't do that back then. They would have stayed close. So Jesus and John the Baptist would have grown up together as cousins. So just imagine, like imagine this with me. You have Jesus and John the Baptist. They're friends, they're cousins, they're bros, they're tight, they're connected, they're roaming the streets, creating trouble, and they're probably not creating trouble. Uh, they're roaming the streets of Bethlehem, they're hanging out together. It's like these two guys are together, they're two rebels, right? Because there's a religious system in place. And what we know is that Jesus had all these insights that blew the rabbis away. That Jesus was wise beyond his years and Jesus was on the path to become a rabbi. So Jesus was like the straight and narrow guy. John the Baptist, he was the crazy one. He was like the leather jacket guy. He was the one that your mom didn't want you to date guy. That's John the Baptist. He was a little crazy He eventually would live in the woods in the desert by himself and eat honey and locusts. Like, that's beyond vegan. Like, vegan is a little crazy. Locusts and honey and wearing camel's hair, that's full-on crazy, okay? So that's John the Baptist. So when these two guys are together, Jesus is the straight and narrow. They're a little both rebel. But John the Baptist is actually more of an outsider than Jesus was. And they would walk the town and they would walk the streets and they would have conversations about God. And they would share things and have deep conversations and talk with one another probably. I mean, just just imagine for a moment, you've got these two guys who grew up together. They were roughly the same age. And so when, when Jesus walks onto the scene and when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus, can you imagine the excitement that John the Baptist is feeling? When he's standing there and he's talking to his disciples and he's talking to this small crowd of people about the coming Messiah. And we don't know from scripture why he thinks this. We don't know why he knows this or how it happened. But all we know is that John the Baptist looks up and he sees Jesus. Now, he doesn't say cousin. He's not like, what's up, Jesus? Like he doesn't call him out or anything. There's no like handshake. There's no like anything. He just sees him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, my cousin, Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Like, it all makes sense now. Our whole childhood suddenly makes sense. All the things that he had said and shared with me as as boys, his insights about Scripture and the Old Testament and God, it suddenly begins to make sense to me that he is the Messiah. So just imagine when he yells, behold, it's not just like, hey, guys, check it out. He is so pumped. That his cousin, Jesus, is the Messiah. And so when he invites, literally invites his own disciples to follow Jesus, he can't wait for them to follow Jesus. Because he knows Jesus and he trusts Jesus. And he knows what Jesus is going to do in their life because everybody's been waiting for this. You see, what John the Baptist understood and what John the Baptist knew is he knew the need of his own disciples and he considered the best way to fulfill it. Now, this is an example of leadership. That as a leader, he understood the best way for me to meet the need of my disciples is for my disciples to go and follow that guy. Because that guy is the guy. I'm not the guy. 
John the Baptist recognized that he was not the Messiah and he knew that his cousin Jesus was. So he tells and invites his disciples to go with him. You need to go spend some time with him. You need to understand him. You need to ask him some questions because he's getting ready to blow your mind. So I think it's true that we often invite people into experiences that we've had simply because we are so enthused and excited about our experience. But sometimes our need to invite others into our experience is because we understand all too well what they're going through. We understand what people are going through because we've been there. We've had our moments of depression, our moments without hope, our moments without joy, our moments of needing a new beginning and a fresh start. We've had those moments. And so when we're surrounded by people that are in that same place as we once were, we can't help but get excited for the opportunity to invite them to possibly experience the life change that we have. It should compel us. It should move us. In other words, if we're trying to figure out who to invite, you start with those closest to you. That's why you have three invite cards. Because we all have three people in our lives that we know that we could invite. I'm not asking you to invite your neighborhood. I'm not asking you to go door to door throughout the streets of Burbank. I'm not asking you to put them on people's cars. I hate it when people do that anyway. I'm asking you to find three people that you have relationship with and say, you know what? I, I don't know what you're going to experience, but I just want to invite you to come and see. Would you just come? Would you come with me? Now, there's reasons why we invite people. And the reasons why we invite people usually fall into one of three categories. There's, we see needs in a person's life and we think that what they need can be found at the church that we attend. So we invite them to church. We, we know the person maybe well enough to believe that what we're inviting them into would be a good fit for them. That's, that's another reason we might invite someone. And the third one is just out of sheer giddiness. We just get excited about it. You're so excited that you finally have a place that you feel connected to, a place that feels like home, a place that you don't have to be ashamed of, a place that you don't have to worry if they're going to do something weird. You can just... Invite them because you're excited and you can't believe that you get to have these experiences and you can share it with somebody else and it can be easy for them to come and not feel uncomfortable. But I think at the same time, there's reasons why we do invite people. There's things that we have to be aware of. There's assumptions that sometimes you and I make that we have to be very cautious of. And you may not have ever heard a pastor tell you this before, but I'm just going to tell you that there are some really poor assumptions that you and I make when we invite people to church. I think one of the things, the assumptions we make is that everybody needs what we need. We think everybody needs exactly what we need, and that may not be true. Now, do we all need Jesus? Yes. But maybe your experience was unique to you. And maybe they don't need exactly what you needed. They need something different. Sometimes we make the assumption that everyone should think the way we do. And that's just not accurate. And then there's this third assumption of everyone naturally will see this and experience it the way I did. And that's also not true. See, we understand that as a church, we are not the only church. We don't say we're the best church. We, we don't tell people that every single person that walks through our doors will fall in love with South Hills. We understand that there's a lot of churches and people have specific needs, and that's why God created all these different churches. That we all have different styles and different methods and different things that we really love. So we understand that. So let's not make the assumption that everybody needs what we need. 
and everybody's going to just say yes, and everybody's going to fall in love with it, and everybody's going to naturally experience it the way we did. But that should not keep us from the invitation. So why is this so important? At the core of the invitation is relationship. See, it's important because at the core of you and I is a desire and a need to love people. See, Jesus called us to love people, to love others the way he did. That was our really only commandment in the New Testament that he gave to you and I, was that we would love one another and love people the way Christ loved the church. And so if we really care for people, then we have to find whatever way we have to find to invite people to at least come and see, to come and see for themselves, to come experience something. Now, this is really important to understand, especially with what happens next in this story. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the next two verses say this, that Philip, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. Nathanael, and he says to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law, Old Testament, Jewish writings, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So imagine for a second, you're Philip, and you find your buddy Nathanael, and you say, hey, listen, we found the Messiah This is the guy that all of the Old Testament guys were talking about. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. Like, you've got to come and check this guy out. And so look at Nathaniel's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Like, you may not fully grasp that moment and that, that statement, but he's dissing Jesus, and he's dissing Jesus's hometown, all of Jesus's people. He's completely dissing it. It's like if somebody was to come to you and say, hey, you know what? You need to meet so-and-so. They're from Texas. And that person goes, Texas. Can anything good come from Texas? Like, that, that's, those are fighting words. Like, I will, I will punch you in the face for saying that. Not about Ohio, because I really don't care that much. But if it was something else that I cared about. But look at what happens. Like, like this, think about this moment. So you invite somebody, and Philip is inviting Nathaniel to the Messiah. Like, he met Jesus, the Messiah, and he's trying to invite his friend to come and check out Jesus. And Nathaniel's like, Psh, why do I even need this? Can anything good come from that? And why do you think I even need this moment? Why do I need church? Why do I need Jesus? And Philip does not go into a discourse. He does not go into a theological debate. He does not raise his voice. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. He simply says, just come and see. That's that's his entire response. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. It is genius to simply respond, what have you got to lose? I mean, what have you got to lose? Your, Your life's not that great. Your relationships are falling apart. Your finances stink. You're struggling in your marriage. You're having a hard time connecting with your kids. Your kids are disrespectful to you and you're trying to figure it out. Why not just come and see if this could help? Why not? What have you got to lose? Because the right interaction, and this is something that I have finally figured out in my own life, that the right interaction with someone can change a wrong impression of something. That when you and I can engage someone in the right interaction it can absolutely change a wrong impression. That they may have an impression of church. They may have an impression of Jesus. They may have an impression of Christians. But when you approach it in the right way, when you don't try to defend it, 
You don't slam down the, the big old family Bible on the table and start going through verses to tell them how horrible of a person they are. When you just simply love someone and you invite them into something because you love them out of relationship, the right interaction can change a wrong impression. So what happens? Well, Philip doesn't even try to push back on Nathaniel. He doesn't push back on his statement. He's not offended. He's not offended by the remark about what good can come from Nazareth. He, he doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get heated. He doesn't go to Facebook and, and start blasting Nathaniel on Facebook and talking about what a jerk he is. He simply invites him. He invites him into something. You know what? I, I understand what you're saying. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if anything good could come from Nazareth. I just know that Jesus did. And I think you should come and check him out. You should come and meet him for yourself. You see, it's God's job to show them that he is real, and it's your and my job to tell them where we found him. Amen. You see, that's our job. Our job is not to convince. Our job is not to make people feel guilty. Our job is not to try to, to somehow sway them with our intellect or our theology. Our job is to simply say, look, this changed my life. This has changed my marriage. This has changed my relationship with my kids. This has changed everything about me. And all I can tell you out of personal experience is that it's changed me. Amen. And then you let, you let God handle the rest. You let God handle the detail. You let God work on their heart. See, and I love what happens next. See, what happens next is, is Jesus sees Nathaniel in verse 47. He sees him coming up the road. And he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus compliments the guy that actually just dissed him. I don't know if he caught that, but he doesn't come back to him and go, hey, I'm from Nazareth. You want to say it to my face? Like, he doesn't do that. So Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi, you surely are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answers him, because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? For you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, let me tell you the truth. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Can I tell you what Jesus did not say to Philip who invited Nathaniel? He did not say the same thing. Philip, who invited his friend to Jesus, did not receive the same thing that Philip received. There was something different that happened. Because each of our experiences with Jesus will be unique. And every time someone comes into an encounter with Jesus, it will be unique to them. So don't think that it's got to be done the way it was done for you, or the thing that they're going to experience is what you experienced. Your job is not to figure that part of it out. Your job is simply to say, what have you got to lose? And the amazing part of all of this for me, and maybe I'm the only one, is that Jesus already knows them. Jesus is already looking at them. Jesus has already been calling them. He's already been nudging them in his direction. And what Jesus needs in this moment, and this is humbling for us to understand, Jesus needs you to make the invitation. He will work on their heart. 
He will soften their heart. He will give them the experience that they need. He will guide them through the journey that they're searching for. He will fill the void that has been in their life for years that they've been trying to fill with everything else. And all you have to do, all I have to do is invite. And say, look, I don't know what you're going to experience. I don't even know if you're going to like it. But I'll take you to lunch when we're done. Would you come to church with me? Would you just come? Would you come and see for yourself? I can't help but imagine this moment for Nathaniel. I mean, just for a second, just imagine this. Nathaniel, who dissed Jesus just a moment ago. In this moment, this person who he believed to be the son of God just shared something with me. Me, the person that thought it was a joke, the the person that accused him of being something that he wasn't, the person that was prejudiced, that allowed it to cloud my own judgment, me. And from that moment on, the experience was no longer Philip's Messiah. Jesus was not just Philip's Messiah, Philip's Lord. It was no longer their church, but it was his. Jesus became Nathaniel's Messiah. And I believe that this church could become your friend's church. It wouldn't just be yours. It wouldn't have to all run through you anymore. But it could become theirs. And their relationship with God would become their own. We may not always see the level of life change that happens. We may not get to see what our simple invitation ultimately does in someone's life. But we might. And so for just a moment... Imagine what that feeling would be like for you. If you could watch some of your friends' lives completely changed and transformed. And at the end of the day, you could sit back and know, yes, God made it happen. But you were part of their story. You were part of the invitation that put them in a position where they could meet Jesus. That's life-changing. That's exciting. And that would compel you and I to keep inviting. See, I think their inclusion, their inclusion depends on your invitation. So let's pray. Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message. We hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on all that's happening at South Hills Burbank.